And I have you, uh, your title as research fellow. That's it. Do they have research ladies too? Or I was trying <laughs> to figure out how to work that in, but I couldn't quite figure out how to make it sound PC, you know? Now, all my female colleagues, uh, they also take the title of fellow. Hello and welcome to Make It, Move It, Sell It. On this podcast, I talk with company leaders about how they're modernizing the business of making, moving, and selling products, and of course, having fun along the way. I'm your host, Adam Honig, the CEO of Spiro.ai. We make amazing AI software for companies in the supply chain, but we are not talking about that today. Instead, today, we're joined with Colin Grabo, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Colin. Well, Adam, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I really, uh, really enjoyed reading your your articles. And so it's such a great opportunity to have you on the podcast. But maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the Cato Institute and, and your role there. Sure. So the Cato Institute is a libertarian think tank here in Washington. So we advocate for policies that are based on principles of limited government, free markets, peace, so things in that vein, given the direction of policy these days, we're, we're pretty busy because we think a lot of things are going the wrong direction. And more specifically, I work in the uh, Herbert uh, Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies, uh, where, as the name implies, I focus on U.S. trade policy with a more specific focus on domestic forms of trade protectionism, a kind of self-inflicted wounds, things like the U.S. Sugar Program, which uh, for those unfamiliar is a program that increases the price of sugar, keeps out imports, which makes sugar more expensive in this country, and also another thing called uh, the Jones Act, which is a form of maritime protectionism. And, and there are other uh, also maritime laws that I focus on. So that's some of what I do at Cato. Gotcha. Well, well, I want to get into those two topics, but I also want to talk about what you called the myth of American deindustrialization, because I feel like you can't pick up a newspaper or listen to the radio without hearing about manufacturing leaving the United States. We don't make anything anymore. And, you know, we work with manufacturing companies and it's really just not true. It seems to be so strange that all this conversation is happening. Exactly. You know, I think, uh, especially as we get into presidential campaign season, we're going to hear a lot more rhetoric about the need to bring back manufacturing in this country, talk about, you know, the lack of factory jobs and so on and so forth. And the truth is that manufacturing never left. If you look at the statistics, it paints a picture of a pretty impressive manufacturing sector. The U.S. manufacturing industry is something like $2 trillion. If it was its own economy, I believe it would be the eighth largest economy in the world as a share of world output. The United States has more manufacturing than Germany, Japan, and South Korea, all of countries you associate with manufacturing prowess combined. It's an impressive story that there is to tell, but I think a lot of this gets lost because fewer Americans work in manufacturing. So how do you reconcile these two facts? In fact, we have a large manufacturing sector with a decreasing share of Americans working in it. It's a tribute to productivity in this country. Americans are incredibly productive, so we can do more with less. It basically requires fewer people to produce more stuff. And then we've seen a swing towards services. So we're increasingly services-oriented. People want to consume services, especially as they get rich. The amount of income they devote to material goods and, and manufactured things, you know, after you have a couple cars in your driveway, you don't need a third or fourth. And people start, you know, turn to things like vacations and going out to eat and things like of that nature. 
So I think that helps explain, you know, kind of where we're at in manufacturing in this country. Yeah, it's it's super interesting, right? Because, you know, we obviously must make a lot of things. I mean, I'm in factories all the time talking to people, but sometimes it does feel a little strange. Like I was in Toledo, Ohio a couple of weeks back and the downtown felt pretty emptied out. You know, and there's a lot of these so-called rust belt cities that, you know, have that sort of post-industrial feel to them. But what you're saying is that just less people are working in manufacturing than they used to. And that's what is really driving this sort of headline about the decline. Exactly. The goal of manufacturing is producing stuff. It's not employing people. It's making things. And we do a lot of that. Uh, U.S. manufacturing, it's slightly off its all-time high. It's pretty impressive. Like I said, you know, $2 trillion. And yes, you know, the classic case of deindustrialization, there's inevitably references to the Rust Belt and this bygone era of manufacturing prowess. But even then, if you drill down, because I think the story a lot of people have in their heads or the common narrative is that there used to be these great jobs and they left for China or they went to Mexico. But the reality is the vast majority of them, they were lost, if anything, to automation, to robots or they went not to another country, but to another state. If you look at the auto industry, for example, all that has shifted southwards. The auto alley, you know, places like Spartanburg, South Carolina and Alabama, places like yep. this, you never would have associated with auto prowess or you know, manufacturing maybe 30 years ago, but it's definitely here. And I think has an increasing share of domestic manufacturing. So there's just kind of a reconfiguration that's going on. The crazy thing is like every manufacturing executive I speak with, they say we can't hire enough people. We're having trouble hiring. You know, they really want to hire more people. And then on the other hand, we have politicians saying, oh, we need to have more manufacturing employment in the U.S. It's just super weird. I mean, I, I've i been talking with a lot of, lot of people because I feel like people don't feel like manufacturing is a cool industry to work in. It doesn't have the cachet of tech or banking or something like that. And I feel like maybe these politicians are actually hurting it because they're kind of making it sound bad as opposed to making it sound good. Maybe we need more of a PR campaign for it. I think you bring up an excellent point. Something the National Association of Manufacturers has complained about is, yeah, a lack of people to fill the jobs that are out there. I want to say last I checked, there was something like 900,000 open positions. And you'll notice this is not a uniquely American thing either. Other countries have also seen their share of workers employed in manufacturing. Other you know, advanced peer countries have seen their share of uh, population uh, workers employed in manufacturing go down. You, know, you think, oh, well, the jobs went to Asia. You know, a couple months ago, the Wall Street Journal had a great article about places like Vietnam struggling to find workers because they say, you know, I want to uh, be an influencer or, you know, I want to you know, work at Starbucks or something like this. And I, you know, these factories are kind of loud and dirty and I don't like them so much. And the manufacturers there have to raise their pay. They're struggling to find the workers. I think there's this perception, at least among politicians, that manufacturing is automatically this great thing everyone wants to do. It turns out a lot of people, you know, maybe it's a lack of awareness about them. But it's not obvious that people are clamoring for a lot of these jobs. And that, that's a real problem for our manufacturers. It also strikes me that the mix of manufacturing companies is an important part of the equation. You know, we have a lot more high-tech chip manufacturing, high-end electronics, uh, and less garment manufacturing or something like that in the United States that's a little bit lower on the production side. Because manufacturing, you know, it runs the gamut. People think manufacturing, I suspect a lot of them think, making cars, making steel, you know, steel factories, something like that. But, you know, it also includes things like beverages and, you know, food manufacturing. That's a whole, that's a whole sector of manufacturing. 
But if we just narrow it down to, I think, high-tech manufacturing, the U.S. is something like the third biggest exporter in the world of high-tech products. Uh, we're a major tech manufacturer, something like 20% of our manufacturing is in high technology. And there's a whole range of difference, yeah, between, like you said, the garment factory and one of these, you know, uh, factories producing chips. They both labeled manufacturing, but different in so many ways. Right. And I think that the human resources needed for something like the chip side is just a lot less. But that's probably a good thing because those jobs are probably way better paying anyway. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So so maybe the issue is more that when politicians are thinking about Toledo or Scranton, Pennsylvania, or these post-industrial places, they're saying manufacturing, but they're really just talking about employment in general in these places or population density or something else that they're using manufacturing as a proxy for. I suspect you're right. It may speak to something else. I suspect that there's also a fair amount of nostalgia associated with this. Uh, it harkens back to the good old days. People tend to look at the past through, you know, rose-tinted glasses and the days when, uh, you know, dad used to work in a factory and everyone got by on one income and things like this. So the notion is that we bring back factories and all these other good things come with it. And I think it's both a misinterpretation of the reality of you know, say the 1950s or 60s, maybe when people associate the United States with being more a manufacturing power. Yeah, I, I think it's a mistake to make some of these linkages and there's kind of a misperception of, of what's going on. But to your point, yes, I think manufacturing is perhaps a proxy for other things. Yeah, no doubt. Well, it seems, you know, from taking a look at your research, there are definitely other ways that the government can help manufacturing instead of just complaining about lack of jobs. And, you know, I know the, the Jones Act is one of your areas that you focus on. Maybe just tell the folks at home here a little bit about the Jones Act. Sure. So the Jones Act, for those unfamiliar, it's Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And oh, what it says, Let me get my, my book yes. out to look that one up. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> and what it essentially says is if you want to move something, uh, goods within the United States by water, you have to use a vessel that meets four conditions. That vessel has to be flagged and registered in the United States as opposed to a foreign country. And it has to be built here in the United States. It has to be crewed by Americans. It has to be at least 75% owned by Americans. And I think a lot of people would hear that and go, well, that, that sounds pretty great. Uh, American manufactured, American crewed. You know, what, what kind of person could be against a law like that? Well, the problem is that these vessels are incredibly expensive to use, which increases the cost of transportation, which is a big deal in a country as big as the United States. These vessels, uh, U.S ship has about three times the operating costs of one um, that's internationally flagged, and they cost about four to five times more to build. So to give you a real-life example, a tanker in this country is estimated to cost over $200 million, whereas over in Asia, you can build one for about $50 million. So, you know, that's an extra $150 million per ship, um, and someone has to pay the piper for that. So, Basically, it increases the cost of transportation, and transportation touches everything in our economy, and so that those those effects kind of reverberate throughout the U.S. economy. Gotcha. So, so for manufacturers in particular, this means that it makes it much more expensive to get a. Let's say we're building something in Texas, we want to get it to Boston, where I live. It's just way more expensive to ship it than it would be to put it on a truck or something like that. Exactly. You know, manufacturers have complained about this before. I know, in particular, some of the steel producers. Producers. Back in the 90s, there were some hearings about the Jones Act in which one member of a steel association, I can't remember the, the name of the association, but had to do with steel and metals. And he said, look, it's cheaper for me to load uh, scrap metal in East Coast and send it to Turkey 
than to send it to other parts of the United States um, because the, the shipping is so expensive. And there was a government report back in the 80s or 90s from the U.S. International Trade Commission looking at why the West Coast was importing so much foreign steel. And one of the reasons explicitly mentioned by the report was the Jones Act and said, look, you know, um, it, it makes shipping so expensive that uh, when you factor that into the total cost of getting the steel, it makes more sense to get it all the way from, say, you know, Japan or somewhere else in Asia than the eastern United States. And that's kind of, you know, the, the story more broadly. It, it tilts the playing field against U.S. products because if something comes internationally, it can use much more efficient international shipping, whereas it comes domestically, it has to use very expensive Jones Act shipping. So it's kind of a tax on domestic products and kind of interferes with Americans buying things from other Americans. This impacts the supply chain, kind of, again, tilts the playing field mm. in, in favor of imports over exports. And the last thing I'll add is in my job, I traditionally advocate for free trade. And, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with buying imports. And there's not. But I also don't think the U.S. government should be in the business of tilting the playing field against Americans. Well, it sounds like this probably aided in the development of a big U.S. shipbuilding industry then, one you, that I haven't run think. across. You would think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this, the law says you have to use a U.S.-built ship. So then people would think, okay, well, maybe things are more expensive. But on the other hand, we get all these U.S.-built ships. And the trouble is we don't. Uh, because, again, they're so expensive, no one really wants to buy them. Uh, this entire year, uh, there has been one Jones Act container ship delivered. It's the only large commercial ship delivered this year. Last year, there was also just one. Uh, that ship, by the way, cost over $225 million. Well, a similar-sized <laughs> ship could be built over in South Korea. One was ordered a couple of years ago for $41 million. So we made things really expensive. No one wants to buy them. So yeah, we we have a you know low single digits produced every year, and to put that in context, like a single shipyard in South Korea this year, Hyundai I think was on target to build forty seven ships. Oh wow! Uh, versus all U.S. shipyards combined building one. Now I'm not mentioning you know tugboats and ferries and smaller things here, but I think it's very difficult to make the argument that this produced a vibrant commercial shipbuilding industry. The knock on effect that I'm concerned about too is also the environmental issues. You know, we had a guest on who was talking about the difference in the environment for shipping things via rail versus trucks, and it seems like it should be the same thing for boats as well. Hundred percent. If you just look at it in terms of CO2 emissions, shipping is generally considered considered far and away the most CO2-friendly means of moving goods from point A to point B. So we should try to encourage more of that to get our CO2 emissions down. But instead, we have a policy that uh, deters waterborne commerce. And it also, uh, the vessels, when we do have things transported by water, the vessels used tend to be older and less efficient because we've made the purchase of new vessels, new equipment, so expensive. That has other effects, too, by distorting trade patterns. So, for example, Texas, Gulf Coast, they export lots of uh, oil and refined products. And a lot of it goes, most of the vast majority of it goes internationally. Oil will be exported to China, to Singapore, to South America. Same thing with fuel. But the East Coast uh, you know, refineries, they get something like 80% of their oil comes in from abroad. It'll come from Nigeria. It'll come from Libya. Fuel will come over from refineries in the Netherlands instead of the shorter distance from, you know, the Gulf Coast. Uh, this isn't just economically inefficient, but it means more emissions because these ships are at sea for longer and polluting more. So strictly from an environmental perspective, this is absolutely harmful. And you can take it one step further. If we make shipping more expensive, that means we have, you know, say more trucks 
on our highways going up and down I-95 near here in Washington. And that means, you know, more and more congestion, more people spending time in traffic, spitting out fumes. So, yeah, there's a lot of underappreciated environmental costs here as well. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's simply cheaper to ship stuff out of the U.S. and re-import it back in. You know, it gives me this idea that we should just set up like a company in Bermuda, ship the oil there, and then we'll put it on a different tanker and send it up to, you know, Boston or New York, wherever it needs to go. We can make a little money that way, maybe. Yeah, you would think. Uh, in fact, uh, people have had similar thoughts in the past. Now, I, I mentioned the Jones Act as part of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. But we've had laws very similar to the Jones Act going back uh, almost to the founding of the country. Back then, shipping was much more efficient. You know, this is the the age of uh, wooden and sail ships. And of course, the United States were all uh, the original colonies were along the water. We had plentiful forests, raw materials to make ships. So we we were pretty good at it. And there was no big cost to using U.S. vessels. But as time went on, we moved to ships of iron and steam that changed. And people started looking for workarounds like the one you just mentioned. In fact, there was a case in 1891 of someone trying to ship 250 kegs of nails from New York to California. And the way they did this is they sent it through Belgium. They used a Belgian ship to go to Antwerp. They offloaded the goods, transferred to a British ship, then sent it from Antwerp all the way to Los Angeles. And obviously, they did the math on this and figured out they still came out ahead. It was more profitable than using an American ship. You know, two years later, Congress caught wind of this. There was actually a court case over this. And they changed law and said, no, no, you can't do that. If it starts and finishes in the U.S., you have to use an American vessel. So that particular option is unfortunately off the table. Mm, all right. Well, I'm always looking for new ideas for new businesses, but I guess we'll just scratch that one off the list. Politically, is there momentum behind repealing the Jones Act? There have been any number of bills introduced in recent Congresses that have addressed the Jones Act in some way. And it kind of runs a spectrum. So, for example, Senator Mike Lee of Utah and Representative Tom McClintock of California introduced a bill that just would have repealed the Jones Act. Other people have taken uh, more nuanced approaches. For example, Representative Scott Perry of Pennsylvania, he introduced legislation that would have exempted the shipment of liquefied natural gas from the Jones Act. Because one bizarre situation we find ourselves in, the United States is one of the world's leading exporters of LNG. You know, we ship it to 30-some countries all over the world. We can't send it to other parts of the United States because there are no ships that comply with the Jones Act to transport it. So New England in the winter, you know, they import LNG from Trinidad and Tobago mostly. And if you look down Puerto Rico, they import 100 percent. It comes from Nigeria, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Last year, when Russia was invading Ukraine in February of last year, they were importing Russian LNG because they can't get access to American LNG because there are no ships that comply with this law to transport it. The legislative fixes that propose kind of run a spectrum. Wow. All right. Well, we'll have to keep our eyes open for improvements to that. It seems very damaging to the environment and to people in the supply chain, except for those one shipbuilder who made that one ship. I'm sure that they really enjoy that $250 million contract that they got. Well, you know, the funny thing is about the, that, that ship is that if you look at the inputs, of course, they are dependent on the supply chain as well. And they require so many things. And most of it's imported. Um, you know, you look at all the major components, the engine, the propeller, a lot of this stuff is all the major components are, are foreign. And, you know, even including uh, the propellers from the People's Republic of China. 
So even then, a lot of this money ultimately goes abroad because the value add of the U.S. shipyard is, is pretty small in the overall scheme. Probably the costs for the ship are raised up because of the Jones Act itself, too. Of so course, it's yes. A, it's a big circle. Wow. Yeah. But, you know, Colin, this is, this is fascinating. How can people learn more about your work and the Cato Institute? Sure. So I would invite them to go to uh, visit Cato at Cato.org. If you want to follow me, if you're active on social media, Twitter or X, I guess, is my social media uh, drug of choice. So I'm there at at CP Grabo, C-P-G-R-A-B-O-W. So yeah, that's the best way to follow my work. Speaking about X, I guess we should let Elon Musk know about this shipbuilding issue. I'm about halfway through the Walter Isaacson bio, and he just loves to take costs out of things. So I'm sure he can get the cost of that ship down by half, no doubt. If I could get him and Jeff Bezos on board, yeah, I think that would go a long way to fixing this problem. Excellent. Well, Colin, thank you so much for uh, joining the uh, Make It, Move It, Sell It podcast. Really great to have you here. Adam, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and all your listeners. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, We're looking forward to speaking to you on the next episode.